0: 200,000 dead. 200,000 dead. There's some numbers that I think are just too big for us to get our heads around. And for me, this is one of them. 200,000 dead. How can we go about our normal routines? How can we tend to our own lives? How can we even come and gather to worship? 200,000 dead. And yet how can we not go on with our normal routines? How can we not tend to our lives? How can we not gather for worship? Aren't these the only sane, the only right responses to such a number? Yes, we contribute and we pray and we pay attention to the latest updates and we go on with our routines, our lives and we gather for worship. Over the years I've talked a fair amount about what it's like to write a sermon and I've talked about it when it was when as smoothly as anything like all I had to do was um, type the words that were given to me by the Spirit and I've talked about it when it was as hard as digging through concrete when every word and every comma needed to be pried out of the earth and nailed into place before it could get away if there's one thing I've learned through the hundreds of sermons that I've written for this congregation um, it 's that there 's never any telling which way it 's going to go. this week was one in which the reality out there, um, the reality on the ground, so to speak, kept messing with my head and with my heart. I mean, how do you preach after reading that headline in the newspaper? How do you preach after hearing the latest update on the radio? How do you preach after reading the latest bulletin from Mennonite Central Committee or email from Daryl Yoder Bonträger? When the news from Haiti leaves us speechless i mean Well, what do we say? Do we say anything? Should we say anything? What seems more appropriate than a creation of a sermon is the writing of a lament. Rather than trying to speak with any degree of confidence about the world and God's work in it, it seems more appropriate to sing some sad song of Zion, to mourn the dead and the shape of the world, to kneel down and rub our faces with ashes and call upon the Lord to save us, to save all of us, to save the world, 200,000 dead, my God, my God, have you forsaken us? The tragedy in Haiti raises so many hard and even frightening questions, questions about politics and economics. Like why is it that we can, for the most part, ignore a place like Haiti until this kind of disaster strikes? Why aren't we as quick to work against the effects of generations of poverty as we are the effects of a natural disaster? Why is it that such tragedies seem to disproportionately impact poor people of color? Why is the world arranged this way? And what would become of us if the world were arranged more equitably? Then there are those disturbing theological questions. Why does God permit such things to happen? Or worse, why does God cause such things to happen? It's like the God of the Old Testament is at it again, at least according to our brother Pat Robertson, wreaking judgment on a nation for its sin. And while we may recoil from such a lack of compassion and such hateful theology, we still wonder in what way, if any, God's will is made known in such things. I mean, 200,000 dead. That is a big number. To get one's head around and especially when we remember that, as we must, that it's not just a number. It's 200,000 individual faces, individual lives, individual dreams and hopes and desires. 200,000 individual stories that ended too soon. 200,000 sisters and brothers. 200,000 children of God. Even the angels must weep. And still, so we go on with our lives because what else can we do? But we are not unmoved, we are not unaffected, or at least I hope we are not. One thing we cannot do is engage in the luxury of despair. That's a real temptation to turn our backs on such things and say that the world is falling apart and there's nothing we can do to stop it. Or to curl up in a ball and close our eyes and think mournful thoughts until the crisis is past. No. it seems to me that God calls us to resist such temptation, no matter how powerful and even understandable it is, and instead face into the tragedies of our world and see in them the face of Christ calling us to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Titus Peachy shared a poem with the worship planner's a poem which reads an awful lot like a sermon, and it was written by Gerardo Oberman, a Presbyterian pastor in Argentina, after he learned of the earthquake in Haiti. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. First Kings nineteen eleven. The earth shook like an enraged beast. The mountains trembled and the sea unleashed its fury. The soil opened its mouth and swallowed whole buildings. And a people exhausted from suffering suffers anew. We saw their faces and heard their cries through images that shuddered and shook people wandering, bodies crushed, death and destruction, agony and pain in the wake of the cruel, devastating earthquake. But God was not in the earthquake. Children without their mothers, mothers without their children, brothers without brothers, and friends without friends, thousands and thousands of lives flattened in seconds. Stories, hopes, dreams, and plans all disappeared in the blink of an eye. The horror left its indelible mark in the lost looks, the desolate faces, the dead, the trapped, the mutilated, and each life torn apart by the unexpected. But God was not in the earthquake. Someone cried out in terror, and other voices joined in. Someone lifted a prayer, and others prayed along. Someone sang, and many joined the song. Someone lifted a piece of concrete, and others began to clear away the rubble. Someone hugged the injured, and others carried the wounded in their arms. Someone stretched out a hand to help, and thousands of hands joined in and God was among them." As I thought about our text this morning, with both Haiti and our theme in mind, two things occurred to me. And the first is this, when we imagine ourselves into God's future, we must reckon with the fact that that future will inevitably include the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed, the victims of human sin and its perpetrators, and the effects of other catastrophes, both of human and natural origin. Which means that our future will require continued faithfulness, continued facing into the hardest realities, and continued struggling with what it means to bring good news to such circumstances and their victims. Don't misunderstand. I do believe that in the end, every tear will be wiped away, and mourning and crying and pain will be no more, and death will be put away once and for all. But even as we hope hope in and and trust in that ending of the story, we have to imagine ourselves in this in-between time, which means our imaginings must take human need and suffering and our responses to both as Christ's body. Our imaginings must take those things into account. The second thing which occurred to me is this. God's love for humanity and for the creation is always, always, far more full and complete than ours. First century Jews could not imagine that God loved anyone more than God loved them. They were Abraham's children, after all. I mean, of all the human beings in all the world, God spoke to Abraham, their ancestor, and called him to follow. And God made promises to Abraham, promises which had sustained his ancestors ever since, Promises of restoration, of shalom, of full communion with God. The Jews were God's chosen people. But Jesus reminds them that God's love, while certainly given to the Jews, was not limited to them. And so he reminded them that while Israel suffered, God provided for a widow from Zarephath, a foreigner, a woman outside the covenant. And of all those stricken with leprosy, God chose to heal Naaman the Syrian, a foreigner a man outside the covenant. In other words, God's love was more expansive than those gathered in that congregation in Nazareth could imagine. And they did not want to hear it, and so they drove Jesus from them and threatened to kill him for challenging their ancient self-understanding. As we imagine ourselves into God's future, We must remember that however big we imagine God's love to be, our imagination falls far short of the truth of it. No matter how expansive we imagine God's salvation to be, our imagination falls far short of it. Which means, I think, that our imaginations have to be well-laced with humility and an openness to being surprised, to count on God's always going us one better, to count on that wideness in God's mercy that we sing about. That wideness can be scary to contemplate. It's much easier to imagine a future which closely resembles our own present, only better. All the familiar things, all the familiar faces will be there, only polished up and restored to their full beauty. And it's right that we imagine that, the future in that way, but we can't let our imaginings end there. We have to be open to being surprised and challenged and pulled away from comfort and tossed headlong. Into the incomprehensible mercy and love in God, of God. Well, I'm aware that I'm a bit disjointed this morning, but I confess the events in Haiti leave me a little off kilter. And if that seems like a poor excuse, well, that's okay. Um, our present is not tidy. There are too many tragedies, too many questions um, at, to come to any firm conclusions this morning, at least for me. The loose ends outnumber those neatly tied off. But I do believe this, that even here, even now, in the chaos and in the wandering, in the tragic and in the hopeful, in the present and in our dreams for what lies ahead, we have the promise that God is with us. God is with us. And not just us, but as Jesus suggests in his very first sermon, God is with every human being everywhere. As the poet says, as we look for God today, as we wonder where God is, let's not look to the earthquake. No matter what the TV preacher said, God did not destroy Haiti. Let's not seek God's hand in that destructive act. Instead, let's look for God elsewhere. Let's look to the faithful ones, to those who join their voices, to those in pain, Let's look to those who prayed with those who were praying. Let's look to those who joined in the songs of the injured. Let's look to those who lifted the concrete and cleared the rubble. To those who hugged the wounded and carried the broken in their arms. Let's look to those faithful ones and know that God is among them. And as we imagine ourselves into the future, as we dream about what we might be like some years hence, Let's remember what we see when we look to those faithful ones. Let's remember that we see the very face of God. Let's remember our struggle to comprehend 200,000 gone. Let's remember the words of Jesus calling us to proclaim good news to the poor. Let us remember that God's love and God's mercy and God's salvation extend beyond anything we can possibly imagine. Let's remember and so get to work and so give thanks. And so walk humbly into the future, knowing that God is with us and will be with us and the whole world. And so together with Christ, until so together with Christ, we come to the end. Amen.